Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 this morning. In chapter 7, Paul is making his compelling argument about a believer's new relationship to, to the law, which, which sets up chapter 8 about life in the, in the Spirit. We're transitioning to a new section today, which you probably picked up by, by listening to, to what, what was read. And in this new section, it's where Paul removes any confusion about the law's character. The assumptions that there's a problem with the law or that somehow, because of what he's been saying about the role of the law, that, that it's, it's flawed. He's labored in these first six verses to show us why the law had to go away, why it had to give way to, to grace. But now he says in no way is, is the law flawed itself. In fact, because it comes from God, it's holy and righteous and good. So how can Paul say on one hand the, the law stirs up sin and its presence adds transgressions? And how can he describe our current relation to it like an old husband that we're no longer married to but then on the, the same time, call it uniquely given by God, call it holy, virtuous, and the very place where God expresses His character, how can He do all of that? And that's what He's going to explain to us today in this next section. And, and Paul gave a summary about this whole chapter uh, in, in verse 4. Look, if you would at verse 4, if, if you would have one verse in chapter 7 that you would go to that would explain all of it, it wouldn't be the end part that we like. It would be this verse. Here is the nutshell summary of chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I mean, that's his entire message. Everything that comes before it and everything that flows after it is to further explain. Set it up, set up chapter or verse 4, and then explain what he means in verse 4. So he goes on to explain further what he means by that very verse. Look at verse 5. This is where we were last week. For while we were in the flesh, what do you mean by what you said in verse 4, four Paul? For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for, for death. That, that's why the law could not do the work that was, was needed. When it's combined with our fallen nature, the results are deadly. But the law was never God's final plan. Look at verse 6. But now, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of, of letter. I mean, God's old covenant was always supposed to give way to the new. It was never supposed to be permanent. And Paul's gospel is declaring that the new has come and, and how the old goes away and how the new comes. And this chapter is explaining how this shift in redemption took place and why it had to take place. Why you can't hold on to, to the law. Why you don't want to hold on to to the law as the ruling principle in, in your life as a believer. Paul, Paul says there has been a fundamental change in the way that a believer relates to the law of God. He has been loosed from its dominion. And this change was described as a death, brought about by the cross of, of Jesus Christ. The, the cross of Christ, the coming of Christ, and what He did on the cross is the, is the hinge point between the old and the, and the new. There's still more to come in the second coming, but right now, the fundamental shift and change happened when, when Jesus came as the Messiah and died on the cross. And because of this shift, we are truly now able to serve God. And, or as Paul put it, we can bear fruit. Not in the old way, which in, involved merely the outward letter, but, but in newness, brought and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, which, which he'll explain in detail in in chapter 8. You, you could summarize Paul's teaching from verses 1 through 6 in two parts. You're no longer under the law's authority, made clear by that marriage illustration and this declaration of death. And second, this new relationship in Christ is spiritually fruitful. 
We're now able to bear fruit toward God. I mean, those are the two primary ways that the law hinders an unsaved man or an unsaved person. The law cannot save them because they're under it. They're, they're bound to it. Bound like a wife is bound to her husband. So that means it can only bring about the verdict of condemnation. You're under the law, and all the law can do to a sinner is condemn them. It, it can never change that, 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 that sinner. That's the first primary way that the law interacts with an unsaved person. The law also then stirs up our sinful nature toward more sin. It condemns us, stirs it up. Therefore, we bear the fruit of death instead of fruit for, for God. That's his opening teaching in, in this chapter. Which then makes someone wonder just what does Paul think about the law? I mean, is he saying that the law itself is bad? That the law is culpable in some way? That the law is tainted in some way? And they're, and they're asking that not only because of Romans 7, how Paul starts Romans 7, but because of what he said back in chapter 5, which launched this, this whole rabbit trail, these chapter 6 and chapter 7, the parentheses here. Chapter 7, if it was a movie, it would be part 2 of the sequel that, that began in... In chapter 5, where Paul triumphantly declares the end, at the end of chapter 5, that we are now under the reign of grace. Grace is now reigning, where the law once reigned. You can recall Romans 5, verses 20 and, and 21. You won't have to turn there, I put it on the screen. This is how, how he launches this. The, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. It came in alongside something that the, so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. Grace is now reigning. How's it reigning? Through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, in Romans 5.20, Paul says the law was brought in alongside God's promise. And it was brought in alongside God's promise of grace so that transgression would increase. He, he says the law was never God's plan for salvation. It was added, and it was added for a purpose. Which to you and I is, is old hat, as they say. I mean, that doesn't sound weird to you because you, 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 you have been Christianized. You, you've been around the New Testament for a while. But that was hard to hear for people who thought the law was a means of, of salvation and a means of holiness. I mean, Paul says bluntly that the law cannot save you in chapter 2 and 3. And in Romans 5, he says that was never the plan. And in chapter 7, he explains why. But, but to somebody who had the law and, 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 and gloried in the law, said, what do you mean that was never the plan? Well, is there something more to the plan? Yeah, there is. That, that's, that's why I'm preaching the gospel to you, Paul says. But it was never God's final plan. The law was never God's final plan. The Mosaic Covenant was never God's final plan. It was added alongside something else, which was grace. God promised to undo the work of Satan through the seed of the woman. And if you read your Old Testament, that seed came through Abraham. And Abraham also showed us how we would receive this, this promise of of God, the promise of salvation. It would be by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness. And then the law of Moses was added some 430 years later. It was added alongside this God's plan of salvation through grace, which was already introduced in the garden and more information came with Abraham. And it was also added to serve a purpose. The end of chapter 5 declares that purpose so that transgression would increase. And chapter 7 just elaborates on that. Well, why? What, what, what does all that mean? It also teaches us how God's law ends. The law, the reign of the law ends in chapter 7. So chapter 7 deals with questions about what, what, what Paul means by that. He, he deals with, with grace related to sin in chapter 6, and then in chapter 7 he deals with the application of law, which then finally gives way to this new life in the Spirit in chapter 8. Paul says the gospel of Christ brings a significant change to your relationship with the law, and praise God that it does. Just as there was a purpose to add it to God's plan of redemption, there is also a necessary death to it now that Christ has come. I mean, the law reigned. It was a righteous reign, and it 
brought condemnation. So a change had to take place. And Paul explains that, that, that change here. I mean, in Jesus Christ, we died to the law's jurisdiction and therefore to its condemnation as well. And, and in this new union to Jesus Christ, we now live free and we, we, we serve in, in what he calls the newness of the Spirit. This new covenant work that, that, that the Spirit has begun, that Christ has inaugurated through, through his through his cross. And now in Christ, we can do what we can never do under the, under the law. We can now bear spiritual fruit. I mean, he said we died to the law so that we might belong to another. We belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God. And we can bear fruit now because we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. I mean, that's a summary of what he said in the first six verses, and that's what we covered last time. And today... We're going to go to this second section and look at Paul's defense of the, of, of the law. I mean, we said this whole chapter is made up of three parts. Verses 1 through 6 defines our new relationship to the law. You can't just wave it away. How did it end? Why did, why did it end? I mean, he does this likeness of a funeral and a wedding. And then in verses 7 through 12, he, he defends the law, the virtues of the law. The law's not the problem. It's, it's actually holy and righteous and good. And then verse 13 through 25, he describes an illustration of how that's worked out in, in real life. So after this very practical illustration about death and marriage, he immediately turns to his question and answer style logic to defend the law's honor and explain its noble work. The law has a noble work to do. And so Paul emphatically says in these next verses, the law is not sin nor is it the originator of sin. But it does have a specific work when it comes in contact with sinners. The law does have a specific work. You might think of the law like, like this uh, a sturdy white trellis that proudly rises on the, on the side of a, uh, of a house that the poison ivy of our flesh climbs on. Or you might think of it like it has no loyalty or connection to the evil army that marshals its troops in rebellion against God, but, but the law is the co-opted base for operations, for wickedness to accomplish its, its foul works. I mean, the law is like the, the sturdy tree limbs that the spider of sin attaches its web, one said. For the holy commandments of God are like the rocks where the, the poisonous snake of iniquity makes its hole. Sin uses the, the, the commandments. It attaches to it. Or if you want to turn that analogy around, sin is like the deadly virus that uses the law to find a host. Uh, it's like the vampire bat that hides in the canopies of God's testimonies. But under no circumstance is the law of God anything but holy and righteous and good. This is what Paul will show us today in verses 7 through, through 12. This next section, Paul will will show us three virtuous works that the law performs in sinners. Three virtuous works that the law performs in sinners. It, it, he says it, its work reveals sin, its work revs up sin, and its work also helps us to recognize sin's control or, or sin's power. We'll look at verse 7 this morning cover the other two as we work, work through the passage. James Montgomery Boyce called this, called this part of Romans 7, sin's sad use of God's good law. Sin's sad use of God's good law. That's a great title, a great summary of, of what's going on here. And the law has a work that, it's, that, it's, that, that it does when it comes in contact with, with sinners. And it's a good work. Let's look at the, the first one here. It's, the first virtuous work that the law performs is, is it reveals sin. It reveals sin to us, and it also reveals sin in us, specifically. If you would at verse 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you, you shall not covet. Now, 
First of all, notice that Paul returns to his question and answer style approach of, of chapter 6. Paul asks questions that his detractors were asking. I mean, this is a question that, that people were, were asking. Paul's heard this before, and he does this on purpose so he can answer it. He doesn't leave anything to, to chance, anything laying in the weeds. He says, pull it out in the open, and let's deal with it. And what they were thinking was, was Paul's message of the gospel actually denigrated the law. Or worse, his, he was saying that, that, that the law was responsible for sin in some way. I mean, they were saying, if what you're teaching about the law is true, Paul, then, then aren't you saying it is part of the problem? It can be blamed in some way for my condemnation? I mean, it, it is a tool used for sin. And that can't be true because the law is from God. And so Paul answers the question, is the law sin? Can it be blamed for sin in, in any way? And you can understand why they were asking that. I mean, if it's true that the law can't save, and, and if it's true that the law can't, you, you can't bear fruit from the law, and if, you're, and, and if you're saying it actually increases transgressions, then, then, then aren't you saying it's corrupt? It, it bears some blame for the sin of, of people? I mean, this is, this is not much different from people who, who say things like, well, if God knew what Adam and Eve was, was going to do and he didn't stop them, isn't he blamable in some way? He's God. Or if, if God is sovereign and he ordains our steps, what about whenever those steps are sinful? Is he culpable for that? And the Bible shouts at the top of its lungs, may that never be said. In fact, it's impossible for God or his law to do those things. And James couldn't have made that clearer in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. And he can't do that to other people. He won't do that to other people. And then he goes on to declare where the actual problem lies. Exact same thing that Paul is doing here. Where does the problem lie, James? Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's carrying away, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, the ugly fruit of sin. So while the Bible says that God ordains sin, that doesn't mean he's the cause of it in the sense that he's blameworthy or that he tempts anyone to do it. That's impossible, the Bible says. I mean, God is certainly sovereign over evil. And the mind-blowing mind -blowing question of why he allowed evil in the world in the first place, you're going to have to wait for eternity, just like me, to, to fully cramp, comprehend that. You're definitely not going to comprehend that here. And while we're not wise enough to understand that entirely, the Bible clearly shows that evil was part of God's decree, meaning he knew about it. He, he planned for it. it. It didn't take him by surprise. I mean, the plan for redemption from sin was drafted before the foundation of the world. I mean, so evil was not something that God reacted to, like, like, like oh no, what do I do now? I mean, it was part of his design. I mean, one said it was not an interruption of his plan. He declared the end from the beginning, and he's still working all things for his good. But, but, a big but, God's role related to evil is never as its author. And he never tempts you toward it. You're drawn toward it by your own lust, and you can put a thousand exclamation points on that statement. MacArthur said he permits evil agents to work, then overrules evil for his own wise and holy ends. And ultimately, being God, he's able to make all things, including all the fruits of the, the evil of all time, work together for greater good. That's Romans 8, 28. We get there. Of course, the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest example of that. But Job is another good one, quite frankly. You read the book of Job? In the book of Job, you can see these twin truths crashing together. I mean, in chapter 1, chapter 1 of Job shows God ruling and controlling the boundaries of everything that, that happens to Job with Satan as the one who's 
who's carrying it all out. I mean, nothing happens to Job apart from God's good design, but God is not creating the evil done to Job. And Job knows that as well. When he was facing loss because people stole from him, evil men stole from him, he, he said, what he said, he didn't blame God. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised, or blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood that the thieves were the cause of the, of the evil. And they were the ones that were guilty for the sin done to him, but he also knew that God was in control of his life. And he sees through them to the good hands of the Lord, the good hand of the Lord. And he doesn't remove the Lord as if he was uninvolved or unable to, to stop it, but he doesn't question the motives of the Lord for, for permitting it either, which is what you must do as well whenever you face your own sin or the sin of someone else. I mean, when evil is done to you, don't blame God. He didn't sin against you. But don't remove Him to such a distant place that you, you can't trust His goodness and that He's going to work in it and, and through it, the work that, that He promises to do. I mean, Paul says that it, it's the same thing with the law. You can think about the law the same way. While the law doesn't save and it cannot sanctify and it increases transgression, the law is not responsible for sin or evil. So don't blame it. It's holy and righteous and good. But it does have this relationship with sin, like God and evil. I mean, as the law and sin interact with one another, it sparks life. But the fire produced from from the interaction is, is from the heart of sin, not, not God's holy law. I mean, there's a reaction when those two things come together. And there's a definite outcome. There's a work that happens. And the first one is that the law reveals sin to us and in us. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. It's impossible. You can't say that. The law is from God. It's holy. It's righteous. And it's good. So what does the law do? On the contrary, it's not sin but I would not have come to know sin except through the law. It, it actually reveals sin to us and in us. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. I mean, Paul defends the law's virtue here and says one of its works is to define sin. I mean, in the law, God reveals His righteous standards and men are able to clearly see how they fall short of that, of that standard. I mean, that's what sin means, to fall short of something. Or the verse that you know, for all have sinned and they fall short of the, of the glory of God. The law reveals God's glorious target. And then you can see the arrows landing in the dirt. Without the law, we still shoot the arrows of sin. It's, it, it's not like that we're not, we're not flinging arrows in in our sin nature. I mean, we're, we're shooting arrows. We just don't, we just don't see how far we, we, we fall short of the, of the target. And so when the law is, is revealed to us, it holds up the bullseye. And, and, and what we think is that we're, we're flinging arrows and we're falling about a foot short. And then you realize when the law comes that the target is about five miles away. You need binoculars to see it. That's how, that's how short you're coming up. Now, everyone listening to Paul would agree with that. I mean, the law shows us what is sinful, and that's a good thing. Objectively shows us what, 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 what is sinful. They, they wouldn't have had any problem with, with, with Paul saying that. Once again, Paul teaches us how to argue a, a point by, by establishing common ground, which is, which is what he does here. He establishes common ground before dealing with, with what's uncommon ground. And that's the second and third work of the law, which, which we'll look at. That's the part that his detractors would have had problems with. That's the part that a Pharisee or a Second Temple Judaizer would have had a problem with. That's the problem that somebody would have with Paul who thinks that they can do good works in order to be saved. Saved. Because he's going to go on to tell us that the law not only reveals sin, but it actually stimulates sin. And it's used by sin as a beachhead to deceive and bring forth, bring forth death. And the key to understanding how the law works in those last two ways is what we started with at the end of chapter 5, which says that the law came in alongside this promise of grace. 
You see, many Jewish people saw the law as the end goal of God, not something that he added temporarily. Tell a Jewish person in Israel today that the law was added temporarily. It was, it, its purpose was, was going to pass away. And you're, you're either going to get puzzled looks or, or maybe, maybe a punch. I mean, they thought that, that the law was the whole ball of wax. I mean, they believed it was God's means to save them and it was God's means to make them more holy. I mean, they held, if I keep this law that God gave me, then God will see that and, and He'll be pleased with me and I'll go to, to heaven. They, they start with it every day. They practice it every day. So they think. They practice the, the outward letter. They don't practice the, the newness of the Spirit, the inward keeping of, of the law. If I keep this law that God gave me, then, then he'll be pleased and I'll go to heaven. And Paul said that would certainly be true if we weren't sinners, but we are. Because when the law is added to someone with a sin nature, it can only reveal sin and it can only stir up more sin. It can't remove it. And Paul understands how they feel perfectly because he thought the same thing at one point in his life until Jesus knocked him off his horse, taught him a vital truth. And the Apostle Paul thought he was a righteous man, thought he was doing God's work, thought he was keeping the law. He was, he, he, he was on a horse, on the way to do God's work whenever Jesus knocked him off the horse. And when he learned the law's intended work, he, he saw his need for Christ. And then he went away to Arabia to learn the Bible for himself, And there, in the desert, Paul had to unlearn what the rabbis taught him. He had to unlearn what he's teaching right now. The same questions. And when Paul actually read the Torah with new eyes, when he read the law with new eyes, he saw long before Moses there was Abraham, who received God's promise of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Then, with new eyes, Paul read the Pentateuch and the prophets and he learned uh, anew and he saw that, that sin and the law existed before Moses and that the Mosaic Covenant was added some 430 years after the promise and it wasn't the beginning thing and it wasn't the end thing. It was brought in alongside for a specific purpose which was to reveal sin and also actually increase it. And the way it reveals sin is what Paul's explaining to us right now, and the way that it increases transgression is what he's going to explain to us in verses 8 through 12. But it was never meant to save, which is what we just learned in verses 1 through 6. It was impossible for it to even sanctify because we were born in the, in the flesh. And so Paul is speaking to people who haven't been knocked off their horse yet, and he's trying to knock them off their horse with the truth. you been knocked off your horse yet if not if you look into the law it it can do that for you god can give you new eyes to see whatever you're you're trying to to, to put there as a ladder to climb up to climb up to god it's it, it's not a ladder it's it's actually railroad tracks you can't get to him he's got to come to you which is what he did in jesus christ if you want a modern example of how to speak to, to, to Jewish people about, about this, this very thing, I, I'd recommend that, that you watch Dr. Menno Kalisher's message to, to his church just a few weeks ago on Yom Kippur. And he is a, a, a Jewish believer trusting in Jesus Christ, preaching evangelistically on the Day of Atonement to, to, to Jewish people that, that had not yet embraced Christ. What, what would you say? on the Day of Atonement, right now, today, to Jewish people that have not embraced Christ. Should I keep this feast? Should I not keep this feast? He, he, made, this, he made this very point. He's preaching to primarily a Jewish audience. He started explaining the law and the, the feasts and the holidays. And, and as he did that, he, he, he's preaching in front of the church, and, and the light that was shining on him was actually casting a shadow on the wall on the wall behind him, very similar. You can see my shadow; it's not on the wall. His was on was on the back on the back wall, and he moved from the pulpit back to where the shadow was. Got got like right up against the right up against the wall, 
And as he moved, the shadow moved. And, and as he spoke, the, 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 head of the head of the shadow changed and moved. And, and he says that's exactly what the, what the law was like. It was like a shadow of the one, of the one to come. It, it, it perfectly outlined God in shadow form. And as God speaks, the God spoke, the law speaks. But with the coming of the Messiah, the, the Lord is here in the flesh. You see, the law was, was to point us to the, to the promise who was to come, and, and He's here. So you must now turn to Him and stop playing with shadows. I mean, would it make any sense for, for, for you to look at my shadow on the back wall when I'm standing right here talking to you? The shadow represents me, but it's not me. But was the law bad? Was the shadow bad? Was it sin? God forbid that you say that, Paul says. I mean, how could it be sinful? The law was the very shadow cast by God Himself. It's, it's in His shape. It, it shows us who He is, what He's like. But shadows don't have power. The real thing has the power. The real thing is the substance. Paul used another analogy besides shadows over in, over in Galatians 3. He, he doesn't call this the, the law a shadow. He calls it a tutor, talking about its work. What was the work of the law? Well, why did God bring the law in? Why was it added? Why didn't he just go from grace to Christ? What, what was its purpose? He describes that in this analogy in, in Galatians 3. He says, but, for, but before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law. You, you could say that's Christ. Before Christ came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. There's its work. There's a tutoring work to lead us to Christ. That's what it wants to, wants to ultimately do with us. Lead us to Christ. Not save us or sanctify us, but lead us to Christ. So that... The result of being led to Christ is that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer need the tutor. I mean, the outline was given to function like a schoolmaster, uh, like a babysitter, if you will. And in that same message, Minnow said, imagine if my wife and I wanted to go out to dinner, and we have young children. In order to do that, we would need a babysitter in order to for us to go out to dinner. And we love our children, so we wouldn't just put any babysitter there. We would hire the best babysitter that, that, that we could possibly find. So imagine we do that. We're going out to dinner. We're going to leave our children that we love dearly behind in the house, and we would hire the best big babysitter known to man. I mean, she's the perfect sitter. There's not a flaw in her. She knew everything we liked and everything we disliked. She, she knew all of our rules and could faithfully adjudicate them with the, with the children. And, and she faithfully does that. She does that with the children while we're away. And while we're away, the children must listen to the babysitter because she has been put in, in charge. But, but when I come home after dinner, I mean, who should the kids follow then? Imagine we come home and there's the handoff. Mom and dad walk through the door and the kids come running out from wherever they're at and the babysitter's there and mom and dad ask the babysitter, you know, how did it go? And then they ask the kids, were you good? How did it go? Who, who, are, who are the kids going to follow then? The babysitter or the father? The parents. And when I come home and ask, how was your night? Would the kids look to the babysitter for permission to answer? I mean, of course not. Why? Because the one who put the babysitter temporarily in charge is home. And she's no longer needed. He said in the same way, God gave his people the best babysitter that you, you, you could have in the law, the law of Moses. But now that the Messiah has come home, you don't need to listen to the babysitter anymore and you don't need to play with shadows on the wall. The babysitter can't save them. And it can't sanctify them. Her primary job was to do her work, and she did that work. And Paul's describing part of that work right here in Romans 7. And the first part of that work is to reveal the sinfulness of sin. 
both in us, or both to us and, and in us. Look, look at verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you, you shall not covet. Notice he makes a general statement. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And then he gives a specific example of what he means. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. General statement, specific example. He, he says, I would have not have known sin except through the law. Let me give you a specific example of what I mean by that. And there's a reason that Paul picks covetousness. Why didn't he pick one of the other commandments? Why did he pick this one? It's because it's the one commandment that unmistakably deals with the motives of the heart. Because one of the things that the law does, it doesn't just reveal to us what's right and wrong, it actually shows what's going on inside of us related to that, to that law. I mean, Paul says the law shows us not only our outward failings, but our inward deficiencies as well. I mean, it's pretty clear whenever you murder someone that you're doing wrong. But what about whenever I look at something that someone else has, and I wish I had that too? That's not always as clear, is it? And the law teaches us that. Which is exactly what Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, when the Pharisees had removed the, the inward application of the law, Jesus lays that out very plainly. True intent of the law. The original intent, you have heard, you shall not murder. You have heard, the law applies outwardly only. But I say unto you, it, and I'm paraphrasing, if anyone's angry with his brother, you've broken the law. It's not just the external, but it's the internal. I mean, the rulers of Israel did what, what, what we all do whenever we're confronted by the law, and it reveals our sin to us and in us. We, we either lift ourselves up above it, or we, we try to water it down in some way. In both cases, we're trying to skirt what the law is revealing about us. I mean, when confronting, when we're confronted with this exposing work of the law, we say things like, well, well nobody's perfect. We, we can't say that that's not wrong, so what do we do? We, we try to lift ourselves up and say, well, look at, look at other people. I mean, nobody's perfect. Or everybody else is doing that. We're trying to skate around the the revealing work of the law. I mean, and what we're doing is in comparing ourselves to other people instead of God's law is to try to, try to excuse its reign over us. It doesn't work, by the way. I mean, you won't be compared to anyone or anything except God's perfect law. And while that's fair and evenly just and that's applied to everyone, you don't want the verdict. You've already been weighed in the balance and found one. You're guilty. I mean, I used to tell students whenever I was a youth pastor, there was a the NFL wide receiver from our hometown was was six foot five, and he had a forty five inch vertical. You know what a vertical means? Like jump straight up in the air, and you're forty five inches from your feet to, to the ground. Twelve, twenty four, thirty six. It's not all the way to forty eight. Forty five. That, that's almost four feet. And I would say, I'm barely six foot, and, and I can jump 12 inches on a good day. On a good day. Maybe off the top of a step. I don't know. So compared to him, there was no comparison, right? 12 inches to 45, I mean, that's almost, that's almost four times. But if this NFL wide receiver and I, if the target that we had to hit was the moon, if we had to jump all the way to the moon, I mean, then what's the difference between 45 inches or 12? Who cares? That's the way the law is. You might find somebody worse than you, but you both have to reach God's standard, not their standard. So whoever you can find that can jump higher or lower than you, that's meaningless. You have to jump to the moon. And there's only one person that... that that reached that standard. There's only one man that jumped not just to the moon, but over the moon and over everything else, and that was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And besides lifting ourselves up in comparison to try to skate out of this revealing work of the law, we also try to water the law down. Lift ourselves up or pull the law down when it reveals our sin. I mean, people claim to, to keep the law by doing it outwardly thinking that it doesn't matter what goes on in the heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, I keep the law. This is what the rich young ruler did whenever he came to Christ. 
I don't have this up on your screen, so you just have to listen. But You remember when the rich young ruler comes to the Lord and says, what else must I do to inherit e e eternal life? L listen to what Jesus, how Jesus answered him in Mark chapter 10, verse 19. What, what, must, what else must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, do not honor your mother and father. He quotes the law to him. And listen to the man's answer. The man answered to Jesus. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Is that true? Of course it's not true. What's he doing? He's applying the outward. I did all this outwardly. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said, One thing you lacked, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But being dis deeply dismayed by these words, the man went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Did you notice the, the commandment that Jesus applied to him? He applied covetousness to it. This man thinks he's keeping the law outwardly and Jesus knows what's going on in his heart and he puts his finger with the law right on his heart and he points something out and the man and it was a loving thing to do that. Did you pick up on that? Jesus loved this man. It's a loving thing to give us the law to reveal to us what is wrong and, and, and how, how that wrong is in us, not just externally, but, but inwardly. And Jesus, knowing this man applied the law ex, uh, outwardly, he put it to him inwardly and it exposed him. He even used the same commandment of coveting because the man loves his money more than the Lord. So the man walked away sad and unsaved, by the way. Walked away sad and unsaved. Paul and Jesus say the motives matter as well as the motions. They're saying the exact same thing. And the heart behind covetousness is idolatry accompanied by a veiled accusation that God is not good. I mean, to covet means I want something other than God or other than, than God has given to me. And so in both cases, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied with God alone, and I'm not satisfied with what God has, has given me or failed to give me. So I want something more. Maybe I want what they have. And I come up with all kinds of deceiving thoughts to excuse my, my covetousness. I say, well, if I had that, I could use that to help other people. They're not using that to help other people. But if I had that, I would use that to help other people. Or if I had what, what God has, uh, has not chosen to give me, I'd use it for the Lord. And the root of all those things, whatever you want to fill in the blank there, is covetousness and distrusting God. I mean, don't you think that the Lord knows all those things if they were true? Don't you think the Lord knows if He gave it to you? You would... You would give it, use it, or if it would be good, of course he would. Of course he does. But he's chosen not to give you that because he knows what you would actually do with it. Or he knows something else about you that you don't because God is good and he does good. And Paul says, I would have never known what coveting really was had the commandment not spelled it out to me. It doesn't mean that Paul wasn't coveting before he read the Ten Commandments. I mean, he had sinful desires for his neighbor's donkey and grumbling in his heart against God's limitations before the law said, thou shalt not covet. He just didn't know what to call it and, and he didn't know how to describe it because the law defines sin. And he also didn't know how it was working in his heart in all of the nasty ways that, that it does. The, the law doesn't just hold up the light to us. The law shines a light on us. And in that law shining the light on us, that's whenever we become guilty. Notice the word that Paul uses. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, watch this. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And I would not have known about coveting. Notice see, it's the first time in this, in, in this, in this chapter that, that he turns it personal. I mean, Paul is talking about the personal work of the law and the personal work that the law does in all of us. And he says, I, I, I learned something. I know something. When I look into the law, it helped me see something in me, experientially. And Paul uses this word, know. It's not just personal, but he knows something. He's not talking about 
recognizing the wrong. He's talking about experientially. I mean, the written commandment, whenever it was given by God, holds up a a list of definitions that we can look to too and say, I see that God says that's wrong, but but the word that Paul uses here goes beyond just recognition of of a tablet of writing that defines sin objectively. He says, because of the sin in me, the law becomes like a mirror and it actually reflects back to me what's going on in my heart. You see the difference? Knowing what coveting was, is, it's not just defining it. It actually shows me I'm doing it in all the ways that I'm, that I'm doing. I mean, that's the work of the law. It reveals not coveting theoretically or sin theoretically. It reveals experientially. And we have no problem with, with, with talking about sin theoretically. In fact, we like talking about sin theoretically. We don't like talking about sin experientially because then that makes us guilty. It's not being defined in general, but it's being pointed out in me, Paul says. That's that's just one of the works of the law, the revealing work. That's why God brought it along. One of the first reasons. That's what Paul's saying when he he said, I would not have known. I I have come to understand now. I I recognize the real power in the nature of sin by the law. I recognize all, all of the stuff that it's doing in me. I mean, he doesn't mean that people without the Ten Commandments aren't aware of sin. Or or that without the Ten Commandments there is no sin. He's already told us the opposite of both of those things. He's already told us in Romans 2 that the law is written on every heart. And he told us in Romans 5.13 that sin existed from Adam to Moses. Before the the Ten Commandments, before the the Mosaic law in Leviticus, sin existed from Adam to, to Moses. So the key then here is that God brought this specifics of this law along so that we might know we might know something experientially and intuitively and, and specifically the, the, the law of specifics clarifies specific sin in us and it wasn't just revelation that sin was already present it provoked and stimulated even more coveting it didn't just show us the coveting that was already going in it actually provoked more coveting and and it actually deceived me to think that I'm keeping it in, in some way. And the first work that law, the law must do in salvation is, is this first point. It must reveal sin to us and in us. It's when the law moves from telling us there's right and wrong to showing us that we're wrong. That's how God tills the ground of the heart in order to make it ready for the seed of the gospel. If not, the seed of the gospel is just, just is sown and it bounces right off the heart because I'm really not that bad. I really don't need that seed. What the law does is, is it, it, it turns the soil up. And if you imagine your heart being that soil, if, if you've ever plowed a garden, you, you know that, that there's, some, there's some hard work going on there. If that's actually flesh that's being done, my heart, that, that, that's painful. And it is painful when the law shows you what you really are, but that's a necessary work. No one has a problem admitting there's evil in the world, but when God shows us there's evil in us, that's whenever it becomes personal. And so before you'll ever be saved, before you'll ever see your need for Christ, the law needs to do that revealing work. Do you see your need for Christ? Can you say, oh yeah, Pastor, I know that there's bad people in the world. Can you say, I'm bad? Here's specifically how I'm bad. If you, if you can't, then I would encourage you to read the law and actually look at it. Look at it in its face. I guess what I'm asking is, have you been knocked off your horseshoe? Because the Apostle Paul thought that he was right with God in fact, he was doing God's righteous work until the Lord knocked him off the horse. And Paul here says that the law is the baseball bat that God uses to do that. And that is a wonderful, gracious, loving thing to do whenever God knocks you off of your horse and then shines the light. And he asked Paul, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when you're on the ground, then you ask the same question that, that, that Paul asked, or Saul asked. Who are you, Lord? When you're on the horse and you think everything's fine, you're not, you're not asking who is God, who is Jesus, what, what do I do with the gospel? You're, you're galloping along when you're laying flat on your back and, and you're blinded. You're, the baseball bats hit you, that's whenever you start asking the question, who is God? How can I be right with Him? Where's hope? See, this is a loving work that God does. This is the purpose of the law. People that would normally ride along and ride right off the cliff into hell, God through the law knocks them off their horses so that they might be able to see that there's one place to look, and that's what I because whether you can jump 45 inches, 55 inches, 12 inches, you have to reach the standard of God's holiness. And there's not a person in here or a person that has ever lived or ever will live that can reach that standard. But there's one who did. And his name was Jesus Christ. And that same one that kept God's perfect standard, willingly laid down his life, died on a cross, shed his blood. But whosoever will call upon his name saved. That's a good gospel, isn't it? That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your work that comes through the law. I thank you how you, you, you don't just define what sin is, but you reveal it in us. You hold it up as a mirror and, and a light. And I thank you for that work. And I pray that not a single person in here listening would, would refuse that work. I pray that they would embrace it, even as, as painful as it is. Because that's the work that has to be done before there can be hope, and before there can be the gospel. You have to tear us down, Lord, before you, you build us up. You have to knock our props out before you can prop us up. Thank you that you do, though, through Jesus Christ. Thank you that there's hope. Thank you for your word. We ask all this in your name. Amen.